0: Uh, I I don't know, eight or nine, somewhere around in there, uh, maybe a little younger than that. There was this place uh, in uh, the town near near where we lived, uh, and it was called the Gospel Inn. And the Gospel Inn was a bookstore. Uh, In Pensacola, I think the equivalent would have been the Gospel Lighthouse uh, that used to exist uh, a long time ago. Uh, The Gospel Inn, and that's where we would go. Uh, to get your choir music and uh, your uh, Bible study material and everything else. And uh, we would stop there, and I would go there with my dad uh, sometimes. And they had this comic book rack, or what I thought was comic books. And uh, I would grab it and uh, whatever I could find there. And they they had these comic books about the end times. Okay, and I can just remember, you get the comic book, and uh, there's... Jesus is, is going to return, but before then, you know, these people are getting their heads chopped off. They're being, you know, persecuted and tormented uh, for Christ. It really freaks me out. Uh, and and so I, of course, went to my dad, uh, you know, pick, here's, look at this picture of this guillotine in this comic book. Uh, and, uh, you know, dad would try to explain to me pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation theories to a uh, eight-year-old, uh, which, you know, I mean, eventually I sort of understood it, uh, but it, I, I, finally he just said, don't, don't worry about it, and I didn't uh, worry about it uh, after that. But at that same place, uh, about 1988, I guess, because, uh, uh, you know, that's when, the, that's when it occurred, uh, I also found this book called 88 Reasons Why the World Will End uh, in 19." 88. And it was written by this guy named Edgar Weisenat. probably how I pronounce his name, but he's not, he's not going to care how I pronounce his name at this point. Uh, Edgar was a former NASA engineer and an amateur theologian. Uh, and he came up with a really convincing theory, or at least it convinced a lot of people, uh, that Jesus was going to come back sometime between November 11th and November 13th, 1988. He sold 4.5 million copies of this pamphlet. I went on Amazon to check. You can still find one uh, if you're really interested uh, in it. I think there's one or two left out there. Uh, but Edgar uh, wrote this book, and, and, he, and he was so sure, he said, quote, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong about this. November 11th or the 12th or the 13th of 1988, Uh, As you can guess, he was wrong uh, about uh, that. And and Edgar revised his theory and realized that he had been a year off through some sort of error in the Gregorian calendar. And it was, in fact, 1989 uh, in which Jesus uh, would return. Uh, He continued to revise his theory up until about 1994, uh, copies of his books. The sales dwindled uh, after 1989, uh, until finally uh, he decided that maybe it wasn't a good idea to continue to try to publish his theories. Uh, and you know, Edgar was probably one of the most notorious, I guess, uh, uh, prophets attempting to uh, prophesy about when uh, Jesus would return. He had everybody so convinced that uh, TBN, the Trinity Broadcast uh, Network, some of you might remember that, they were publishing during 1988, or they were broadcasting during 1988, sort of weekly updates for you about how to prepare for the rapture. And people were really, really serious uh, about it, and it was really devastating uh, when, of course, uh, the Lord did not return in 88 or 89 or any year thereafter. But since the beginning, people have wanted to know how and when it will all end. And that started with the disciples. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple grounds in Jerusalem. And the disciples are calling to uh, Jesus' attention how magnificent the temple is. Uh, and Jesus says to them, looking at the temple, he says to them in Matthew 24 too, Do you see all of these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. No one stone will be left on top of another, which was a pretty incredible statement considering uh, that the stones uh, probably averaged 30 feet in length, uh, 10 feet in height, and weighed as much as 80 tons, stacked on top of each other. Certainly, uh, certainly in that age, it would have looked like a, an impossible task for anyone to topple them. Uh, And and so Jesus makes this prediction, and he and his disciples go on for about 30 minutes. It was a 30-minute walk out to the Mount uh, of Olives, which by that time they got up the nerve uh, to ask him a question, uh, which was this. Uh, They said, tell us, when will all of this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Because in their minds, the destruction of the temple would be the end uh, of the world. And, and Jesus answers them and, and he talks to them about the destruction of Jerusalem he talks to them about the signs that his return will be near uh, and he, he sort of talks about both of those things together uh, and in fact the destruction of the temple did come in AD uh, 70 the Roman uh, Empire tore down those massive walls and not one stone was left on top uh, of another and they slaughtered the Jewish people. But that was not the end of the world. And we could read through many of the other signs that Jesus gave in Matthew 24 of upheaval and disaster, most of which have been occurring in one form or another for the last 2,000 years. And like uh, poor Mr. Wisenat in 1988, people have been trying for the last 2,000 years to prophesy uh, the return uh, of Christ. Every time there is war, famine, natural disaster, people say, these are unprecedented times. As an aside, if I could strike a few phrases from the English language, the phrase unprecedented times would be one of those that I would strike, along with a few others. Um, They say, these are unprecedented times. It's never been like this before. So this must be it. In 1918, the war to end all wars was coming to a close. There were about 9 million combat deaths and 13 million civilian deaths. And of course, the Spanish flu, which may have killed as many as 50 million people worldwide. If there was ever a sign that the end was near, that certainly had to have been it. Yet here we are a hundred years later. Uh, I can remember back during the first uh, Gulf War, there was a lady at church who came up to to dad, uh, convinced that Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. She had a list of, and she had a list of things, I can't remember them, but she had a list of things, you know, that you know this and this, and this prophecy, and that prophecy, and if you read this, and if you add these numbers together, um, and he patiently explained to her that it was highly unlikely uh, that uh, Mr. Hussein was in fact the Antichrist, but he was unconvinced and undeterred. And there are plenty of people much smarter than me uh, who have some pretty interesting ideas about the signs of Jesus's return. Uh, And by the way, I mean, we we won't get into this today, but you know, there's depending on, on where you, you fall on all of this. You know, there's the rapture where we meet Jesus uh, in the air if we're still here. And then there's actually his second return with us to this earth. Um, and uh, I'm a, I'm a pre-trib uh, guy. So, but, but for our purposes, we'll just talk about, we'll talk about it in terms of Jesus' return. The first thing that we know is this. Right? No one can know when. That's the one thing we know for sure. Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the son himself. Only the father knows. It, we'll stop right there. That, that's an interesting thing to me right there. Jesus says, at least while he was on this earth, he says, I don't even know. I don't even know. Only the father knows. When the son of man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. Verse 39, people didn't realize what was gonna happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the son of man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, and the other left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica this, For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. So we don't know exactly when, but we know this. It will be soon. 1 Peter 4, 7. Peter says, the end of the world is coming soon. We don't know when. There's no way that we can know but we know it will be soon. Meanwhile, back in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus continues with a parable about what he expects from his followers while we wait for his return. And by the way, one thing uh, common to all parables is that you can read 10 different commentaries about a parable and get 10 different opinions about what that parable means. So uh, I'm just gonna give you my take uh, on this one. Jesus says, Matthew 24, verse 45, a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his, his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. Verse 47, I tell you the truth. The master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while. And he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. Verse 50, The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this parable, Jesus is talking directly to his followers about urgently and faithfully carrying out the task he has given to them while he is gone. And in the parable, when the master returns and finds the good servant, working faithfully, right, taking care of and feeding those over who he's been given charge, that servant is rewarded. But the evil servant who thinks, hey, my master won't be back for a while and ignores the work he's been given in favor of self-serving activities, right, the master returns without warning and the servant is, is punished. And the bottom line of the parable is this, the master will return unexpectedly and will hold his servants accountable for how they carry out the tasks they have been given while he is away. And, And I want you to note that this parable isn't about somebody losing their salvation, okay? It's about disappointing your savior and losing out on eternal rewards. And so I would say to you and to me, let's not get distracted from what's really important. Um, Let's not waste time debating about whether the end is near. Because I can tell you uh, with assurance, the end is in fact near. But if anyone tells you that they know the day or the hour or the month or the year, get as far away from them as you can, okay? I promise you, they don't have any better idea than Mr. Wisenat about the day or the hour or the year that the Lord will return. If you were a follower of Jesus, let's be less concerned about discerning the the hour and the day and the year of the master's return and more concerned about making sure that when he returns, he finds us faithfully working to accomplish the task that he has put before us. And what's the task? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus tells them, I am the supreme authority in heaven and on earth. All authority is given to him. And here is the command that he gave to them and that he gives to all of his followers. Number one, this is your mission. Go make disciples. What does that mean? Lead people, influence people to know and believe in Jesus. And what does that look like for you on an everyday basis as you carry out the Great Commission? And as we carry out the Great Commission as a church, this, we filter everything we do through the question of how will this impact my influence for Christ? How will this impact my influence for Christ? And we talked about this a few months ago. I know it feels like forever. Uh, we talked about this a few months ago in the context of politics, right? We said that my influence over someone for Christ is more important than winning an argument Or an election. My influence over someone for Christ is more important than my political party. It's more important than my personal preferences. It's more important than my financial security. It's more important than my comfort. My influence is everything. I will not compromise the influence that I have over someone for Jesus Christ. I won't do it for any reason. I won't give up my moral authority and my influence to enjoy a few moments of pleasure. And I won't be so consumed with winning and being right that I beat someone into submission, verbally, with no thought of what that victory might do for my ability to influence them for Jesus. Let's not forget this. Every life conceived will exist forever somewhere. First on this earth and then in heaven or separated from God in hell. And we are accountable. We are accountable to our master. We are followers of Christ. We're accountable for the influence, good or bad, that we have for him. And, And I hope that's a sobering thought to you. I hope that, you know, makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck a little bit. That we we think of things in this, oh, the church, and the church should do this. The church is you. The church is us, together. This is the commission that we have been given, and the master is coming. We're commanded to disciple. And then we're commanded, uh, by the way, to, to baptize them. Which means that we lead them to publicly identify with Jesus through the act of baptism. Interesting that, that, that baptism is, is included as part of, of the Great Commission. It shows you how important that act of publicly identifying with Jesus really is. And then we teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that Jesus has given to us. And what, what are those commands? By the way, we can summarize them with this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And the second is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. We teach them to love God and love each other. Lead them to know Christ. We influence them for Christ. We lead them to publicly identify with Jesus and we lead them to love God and love their neighbor. And we should be doing those things, of course, as well. Long ago, we agreed as a church to this. A great commitment to the Great Commission builds a great church. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the Great Commission is why you're here. God has not left us on this earth for any other reason. He's not left us on this earth so that we can achieve financial security, either individually or even as a church, by the way. Everything should be filtered, right, through whether we're accomplishing the Great Commission. He didn't leave us here so that we can excel in our chosen profession. He hasn't delayed his coming so that we can uh, win elections. Although I do, uh, as I said last time, I encourage you to support the candidates uh, that you believe are best equipped to govern your local uh, and state and, and, and national governments. But there's also this, and I think this is what we struggle with the most sometimes. It is not the job of the local church to beat back the forces of evil on this planet or in this nation. It is not the job of the local church to win a culture war. It's not our job. We spend a lot of time wringing our hands over it and I'm not saying we shouldn't stand for what's right because we should but that is not why we're here. God does not need us to win a culture war. He doesn't need it. Does it, he, does, he doesn't need us to keep the Ten Commandments standing in a courthouse. He doesn't even need us to keep a cross standing in a park. Those things are good. I don't have a problem with them. That's not why we're here. On the screen, this is why we're here. It is our job to do whatever it takes. To carry out the Great Commission, whatever it takes. And that's the task for which we will be held accountable. That's the task which you will be held accountable for when the Master returns. The end is near, the end is near. The master's return is imminent. What will he say to you? I I mean, there's a day coming. Sometimes it seems so far away and then suddenly it's here. And it's real. And there's no going back. And all the things you wish, I wish I would have and I wish I could have and I wonder if I had done this. And you can't. It's just over. And that day is coming for all of us. The day when we will give an account to the master. And I ask you, what are you willing, right now, what are you willing to do? What sacrifices are we willing to make? What arguments are we willing to lose? What comforts are we willing to give up to carry out the mission of the master? And so that's it. Let's get refocused. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Satan loves it when we get distracted by things that seem important. I mean, what could be more spiritual than debating Bible prophecies over when the Lord will return? What could be more important than fighting the forces of evil in this country and in this world? Let's keep the main thing the main thing and focus on the mission that the Master uh, has given us. I'm going to pray, and you're going to be dismissed. Uh, and I ask you this week, right, every day, uh, to think about what am I doing this day to carry out the Great Commission? What am I doing this day to influence someone? For Christ. What will the master say to me. On that day. Heavenly father. Thank you for your word. Thank you. uh, For the hope. That we have. Hope for eternity. But father there's a, a sobering part of that. For me. That. An account will be given for me and for each one of us here who know and love you of what we did with our time on this planet. There will be rewards and lack of rewards. There will be a master who is pleased and a master who is disappointed. And I pray that each of us would be convicted each day individually and that we would, as a church, collectively be renewed in pursuing the commission that you have given to us in this community, a community that's growing and thriving where we see growth all around us and people that need you whose souls will last forever somewhere Oh God, that we would be convicted about the responsibility that we have to influence those souls for you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for those who labor here for you. I pray for our country, and I pray that you would bring an end to the um, the sickness. I pray that you would bring us back to a time uh, where we can all be together. But until that time comes, let's not fail to continue to carry out the mission that you've given to us. I love you, Father. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' holy name, I pray.